This month on a special Security Trends edition of Security Management Highlights. It's really difficult to toe that line between providing great customer service and keeping the place safe. Protecting soft target venues can sometimes require creative, out-of-the-box thinking. Assistant Editor Lily Choppa talks to us about her visit to one such site in Orlando, Florida, where they're doing just that. One initiative that they just introduced earlier this summer was an effort to better protect workers from cancer-causing chemicals. There are new laws in the United States and around the world for 2017 regarding workplace compliance. Assistant Editor Megan Gates explains what employers can do to ensure they're following the rules. Plus, they set up a speed camera in the center of town that was having a big problem with traffic violations. Have you ever heard of nudge theory? Managers will learn more about using behavioral economics to their advantage in this interview with Sean Benson, CPP. I'm your host, Assistant Editor Holly Gilbert Stowell, and that's all coming up in this special special Security Trends edition of Security Management Highlights. One of the most troubling trends in security this past year has been an increase in the number of soft target attacks, including massacres on airports in Brussels and Istanbul and the coordinated terror attacks in Paris. Assistant Editor Lily Choppa visited one venue considered to be a soft target, the Dr. Phillips Center for the Performing Arts in Orlando, Florida. She joins us to talk more about how the location is protecting its employees and patrons. Welcome, Lily. Hey, Holly. Tell us a little bit more about the ASIS Media Tour and some of the sites that you visited. For a little background, the Media Tour is an opportunity for press to come see where the ASIS International Seminar and Exhibits are going to take place each year. I was able to go to Orlando this year in May to get a look at what security in the city is all about. I was able to tour the Mall at Millennia, which has both low and high-end stores, as well as Florida Hospital, which has 22 campuses to secure. I also spoke with security leaders at the University of Central Florida about how they protect the largest university in the nation. And of course, I got to take a sneak peek at the Orange County Convention Center, where ASIS 2016 will be hosted, as well as the Hyatt Hotel next door. And another place you visited was the Dr. Phillips Center for the Performing Arts in Orlando, where you learned more about what they're doing to secure that venue. So what are some of the characteristics that make it a soft target, which is what your feature is about, trends in soft target security? Sure. Well, the building itself is in the middle of Orlando with a big, grassy, multi-use space right in front of it. It's also got an overhang right above the vehicle drop-off point at the main entrance, which could be considered a target. And the main entrance is pretty wide and open during shows. Beyond that, it's a really nice theater. Everyone who goes there feels inherently safe and comfortable. There can't be too much of a security presence because the center's goal is to be open and welcoming. There are also classrooms on site. Given this open environment where they don't want to intimidate people through, you know, too much visible security, how are they approaching their overall safety and security picture? I spoke with Chris Savard, the director of security there, and he just started his position in December. And he just started his position in December and came from a law enforcement background. He told me it's been tricky to balance security with a theater culture. He did start requiring bag checks and move the valet and parking so that they aren't near that overhang. He also employs off-duty police officers and keeps them very visible. Sometimes he does have to deal with inconveniencing people just a little bit in the name of safety. Like when he moved the valet further from the building, people wondered why they couldn't walk right up and straight into the entrance. But he said for the most part, people are really on board and understand what he's doing to increase security. As for the bag checks, 
He said that it's incredible to see what people bring in. They bring in all sorts of things that could be considered weapons, including knives, tasers, even guns, since Florida is an open carry state. So the bag check has been a success overall. Given it's a cultural center, I'm sure it's a tough balance to strike between hospitality, security, and customer service. So how did your sources say that they are striking that balance? Well, Savard says that he relies a lot on volunteers who can greet guests and give them direction while also keeping an eye out for suspicious behavior. The goal is to make guests feel welcomed while keeping them safe. When I toured the center back in May, they really stressed community involvement. So so I wasn't surprised to see that after the Pulse nightclub shooting, the Dr. Phillips Center hosted the city's first vigil and used that lawn as a memorial area. It was pretty special for people to have a place like that in the middle of the city. So like you said, it's really difficult to toe that line between providing great customer service and keeping the place safe, especially at soft target venues. Thank you so much, Lily. See you later. On the horizon for employers around the world are changes to workplace compliance laws. Assistant Editor Megan Gates talks about some of the most substantial updates and how organizations can ensure they remain compliant. Hello, Megan. Welcome to this special trends edition of the podcast. Hey, Holly. Thanks for having me. You wrote about trends in specifically workplace compliance. Tell us more about the Department of Labor's new rule on reporting workplace injuries and illnesses to the government. So yeah, the new rule is called Improved Tracking of Workplace Injuries and Illnesses. It was published by OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, in May 2016, and it requires many U.S. employers to electronically submit information about workplace injuries and illnesses. This is information that companies were required to submit already, but they're just making it so that they have to submit it electronically. And the plan is that when they submit this information electronically, OSHA is then going to take the data and put it into a public database online so anyone can access it. But we don't know exactly what the database is going to look like and what kinds of information will be readily available at first because OSHA is still constructing the database. So basically, the rule applies to all employers with 250 or more employees at a single facility covered by OSHA record-keeping regulations, and they have to electronically submit injury and illness information to OSHA in three forms. The 300, which is a log of work-related illnesses and injuries, the 300A, which is a summary of work-related injuries and illnesses, and the 301 form, which is an injury and illness incident report. So for a specific injury that one might have at work, say, I was walking down the stairs and I fell and I broke my leg, our employer would be required, you know, to submit an incident report documenting that I was at work and I broke my leg. And the new rule also applies to facilities with 20 to 249 employees in high-risk industries. They're also going to be required to submit their information from Form 300A electronically. These are industries like manufacturing, construction, utilities that OSHA has designated as high-risk. The requirement for facilities to submit the 300A summaries electronically goes into effect on July 1, 2017. If required, facilities will have to submit Forms 300 and 301 electronically by July 1, 2018, and then will be required to submit all three forms electronically by March 2, 2019. Now, you write that the rule reemphasizes whistleblower requirements for employees to report injury and illness without fear of retaliation. Can you explain? Yeah. So under the Obama administration, especially in his second term, there's been a big push to focus on protecting whistleblowers. So the new rule basically reemphasizes whistleblower requirements for employees to report injury and illness without fear of retaliation, which includes, you know, reduction in pay, being fired or being reassigned, you know, for reporting an injury or illness 
illness at the workplace. And I reached out to OSHA and they explained that the rule clarifies the existing implicit requirement that an employer's procedure for reporting work-related injuries and illnesses must be reasonable and not deter or discourage employees from reporting. And it also incorporates the existing statute that prohibits retaliation against employees for reporting work-related injuries or illnesses. And I spoke with Edwin Folk Jr. He's a partner at Fisher Phillips and the former head of OSHA from 2006 to 2008 under President George W. Bush. And he said the key word here when it comes to whistleblower retaliation is reasonable because this is new for OSHA. There's still some uncertainty about what exactly this means, but for a reporting procedure to be reasonable and not unduly burdensome, OSHA said it must allow for reporting of work-related injuries and illnesses within a reasonable time frame after the employee has realized that he or she has suffered a work-related injury or illness. The other big change that comes with this re-emphasizing of whistleblower protections is that OSHA can now cite a company for retaliation during an inspection without an employee filing a complaint with OSHA. Previously, an employee would have to file a specific complaint with OSHA alleging that they had been retaliated against and then they could investigate the incident. And now with this new rule, they can skip that whole process. So OSHA can investigate immediately if it discovers something during an investigation. And the rule also specifically addressed blanket post injury drug testing policies, which could be considered a form of retaliation by an employer. OSHA is now prohibiting these kind of policies unless employee drug use is likely to have contributed to a workplace injury or illness and the drug test can accurately identify impairment caused by drug use. So given all these guidelines, how should employers approach the new rule to ensure they're compliant? Yeah, well, first off, obviously look and see if the new rule applies to you and your facility. And then second, take a look at how you're advising employees to report injuries and illnesses and make sure that it's reasonable, aka not dissuading people in any way from reporting as you could get cited for whistleblower retaliation by OSHA. And then employers should also brush up on their rights during an OSHA inspection and make sure that employees know what to do if OSHA shows up to do an inspection. Ed Folk told me that often if an employer doesn't assert their rights and allows OSHA to conduct a wall-to-wall inspection when they show up on site, this can lead to many more citations for the employer, you know, and obviously penalties and fines down the road that are associated with those citations. Employers should also be conscious of what they're putting in log information for the 300, 300A, and the 301 forms that they're submitting because, you know, this information will be publicly available through the new database that OSHA is putting together. The database will leave out personal identifying information, such as employees' names, but there will be a lot of information in those forms that activists, unions, etc. could use against employers, say, to organize a boycott or to recruit. So employers just need to be conscious of what they're submitting to OSHA. And Ed Folk said making sure that they're submitting sort of the minimum amount of data required. And Megan, your trends feature also includes information on international workplace compliance trends. What are some of the latest efforts from the European Occupational Safety and Health Administration? Yeah, so one of the big things right now is the European Union Occupational Safety and Health Administration's Strategic Framework uh, for 2014 through 2020. It identifies three major challenges facing the EU, such as improving implementation of existing health and safety rules, improving the prevention of work-related diseases, and the aging EU workforce. The framework has a list of objectives to help overcome these challenges, such as consolidating national health and safety strategies, improving enforcement by members 
border states and providing practical support to small and micro enterprises to help them comply with health and safety rules. And one initiative that they just introduced earlier this summer, I believe it was in May, was an effort to better protect workers from cancer-causing chemicals by changing the carcinogens and mutagens directive to limit exposure to 13 cancer-causing chemicals at the workplace. The Commissioner for Employment, Social Affairs, Skills, and Labor Mobility, Marianne Tyson, said, you know, cancer has an enormous impact on workers, their families, industry, and society. With this proposal, we will save 100,000 lives in the next 50 years. So this is a big effort by the EU. You know, they're going to be introducing new initiatives throughout the next couple of years into 2020 and seeing how those work, you know. And so these are just a few of the trends on the horizon that employers should be aware of for the fall and obviously into 2017 and paying attention to for the future. Very informative. Thank you so much, Megan, for stopping by. Thanks for having me, Holly. Finally, one of the latest trends in social science is behavioral economics, and managers can use this field of study to their advantage when getting employees and patrons to comply with their security programs. Author Sean Benson, CPP, joined me to discuss his article on this topic. I began by asking him for a little more background on behavioral economics and how it gave birth to nudge theory. The beginning of behavioral economics is going to begin with a paper written in 1979 by an economist named Daniel Kahneman. His paper was called Process theory and analysis of decision under risk. And what he did, he tried to model real-life economic financial risks that people took, not just the abstract ones that were theorized by some of the older school economists. And what he really came down to the uh, analysis that most of us understand, that people make good decisions, however, they're capable of making some very bad ones as well. And they're not necessarily out of any kind of moral framework. Just the human brain is just wired to take shortcuts. He won a Nobel Prize for that back in 2002, and in the following years, an economist and a lawyer named Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein wrote a book taking his work titled Nudge, Improving Decisions About Health, Wealth, and Happiness, where he took Kahneman's work and applied it to a little more everyday mundane situations to help people make better decisions about a wealth of things, and that was really the jumping off point for my research into the article. You cite several interesting examples from real life in the story, which demonstrate how nudge theory works to motivate people to make certain choices in real life. Can you share some of those examples with us? Yeah, one of my favorite examples is the Stockholm speed camera, where they set up a speed camera in the center of town that was having a big problem with traffic violations and people speeding through their town center at excess speeds. They set up a speed camera that not only captured who was going over the speed limit, but who was complying with the speed limit. And while they were doing that, they had a lottery. So people who were caught actually going the speed limit and doing the right thing were entered into a lottery. So they were given a chance of winning a couple thousand dollars, not a large prize, not anything budget-busting by the city standards, but it made a game out of uh, speed control. It allowed uh, everyone to have a little bit of skin in the game when it comes to uh, doing the right thing about speeding through the town center. Violations were reduced drastically, so the cameras recorded not just the speed and the license numbers of the speeders, but the license tags of those who were respecting the speed limit. About a $3,000 lottery prize was awarded. Prior to the experiment, the average speed on the stretch of road was about 32 kilometers per hour, and after the speed lottery, the speed dropped about 22% to 25 kilometers. This is an excellent example of how nudge theory can use games in order to help security policy enforcement. You write that nudge theory and choice architecture can be used in a security context. What are some of the ways these concepts are being utilized to create safer and more secure environments? Inventory shrinkage is a huge challenge in the commercial retail industry. I think last year they had the number about $44 billion. So it's a huge challenge. So using nudges in that context, one of the most common is using 
closer to television cameras. We're all familiar at the stores where as soon as you walk in, you see your picture on the CCTV monitoring system. That serves as an environmental reminder that you are being watched. So any bad behavior is going to be recorded, is going to be investigated. So it acts as a deterrent to shoplifting. Employee engagement is another good environmental reminder that you are being paid attention to. So managers that actively uh, encourage their associates to engage with their customers, ask them if they can help, if they can assist them in trying things on or finding items or something like that. It's just another reminder that your behavior is being monitored. It does deter things like shoplifting. Yeah, so for something to be a nudge, it's not a mandatory choice. You still have the choice to do something or not do something. A great example is at the airports near ski resorts, in order to help facilitate putting the right customers into the right security lines, they've come up with a ski slope theme. So you have the green circle lines that would be for families traveling with small children, and the blue squares would be for infrequent travelers, and the black diamond, of course, would be for the common business traveler. There's no requirement to take any one of these lines, but by giving people the option to go in the line they believe would best serve them allows the security structure to set up in a way that can actually best serve the customers. So the most important things to consider when developing security nudges are ethics and metrics. How might companies and managers use their security metrics to implement nudge theory at their organization? Ethics in that you shouldn't be nudging people to do things that they have not already agreed to do. There shouldn't be any secrecy into what you're doing. There shouldn't be any ill intent on what you're doing. You need your metrics in order to figure out where your problems are and where you develop your budgets to begin with. You don't know you have a problem until you can measure the problem. So starting with your metrics, you can figure out where your problem spots are, then get teams together, discuss with your employees creative ways to control the environment to best solve the problems you're trying to address. From there, your metrics give you a great measurement point to figure out if you're not just working or not. The big picture question for a security manager is, is it easier for an employee to comply with your security policies or easier for them not to comply? If the answer is that it's easier for them not to comply, you need to do some rethinking and some nudges might be in order. People don't always make decisions based on moral imperatives. They often make it based on the environment that they're in. The better you can control the environment and set that up for security, the more secure your environment's going to be. Security managers should embrace their role as choice architects, help them become change architects as well. Thanks so much for joining us, Sean. Thanks for having me. That does it for this month's podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Assistant Editor Holly Gilbert-Stoll. If you plan on being at the annual seminar and exhibits in Orlando, we hope to see you there. Thanks for tuning into this edition of Security Management Highlights. Bye-bye. Bye.